yesterday. And uh, I, if you didn't hear me complaining, let me complain right now for a little bit. I, I ran a 10K yesterday. I've never done this before. It might be part of Mark's influence in my life. He was always running. And, and to me, running has always been a punishment. You know, when you, you are playing basketball, in my case, I had to run. And when I did something wrong, and so, but uh, but he, I ran. Now let me tell you my favorite part of the 10K. My favorite part of the 10K was when I crested the hill at the very end, and I came up to the top, and off into the distance was a big blue arch that they had set up that at the top said "finish." And as my legs felt like rubber, and I was making that turn, I saw the finish line. <clears throat> now. Let me tell you another little bit. might lend you insight into my heart. I don't know if this is a good thing. But uh, I wanted to beat this guy who I happened to be going you know, up and forth, or up back and forth with the whole time. Uh, my brother and I were racing, and, and then he took off. And so that ship sailed. I couldn't beat him. But there was this other guy. I had no idea who he was. Never seen him before in my life. He had a beard, and that's all I knew. The other thing I knew about him is that I wanted to beat him. And so at one point, he, he got ahead of me. And then I got ahead of him, and we kind of like look back at each other just to make sure. We're, and at the very end, he kind of comes past me because I had taken, uh, I had taken the lead. And then we're going up that hill I told you about. That last hill, we're crusting, and he's ahead of me. And we get on level ground, and he's ahead. But when I saw that finish line, there was a fire under me. For that moment, the bearded man became my enemy. And I needed to beat him. And so I turned on everything I had left, and I ran in, and at the very, probably the last 10 yards of it, I passed him, and I came in, and I felt pretty good about myself. He didn't care, probably, he didn't know I was racing him, but, but we, we, we passed, and I beat him, and I felt pretty good. What is it about that finish line? I didn't know I had anything else left in me. I didn't know I could push any harder than I had pushed. I was drained. My legs at that point were gumby. I was absolutely, totally uh, just done. I wanted to collapse at the end. There was a few times I was wondering, am I going to have to walk here? But that was one of my goals. I didn't want to walk. And so I made it to the end. It was that finish line. It was knowing that I had not long before I could rest. It was just a short amount of time. And then once I crossed the line, my race would be done and I would suddenly be able to rest. I would suddenly be able to, there's all kinds of water there and there were some fruits available free and you could just go in and you could eat and you could drink and the race was over. There's something about being able to see the end that makes you want to press forward. Now that's true in general in the Christian life. That's true as we think about what it means to to follow Christ, we know there's an end game. And even Paul talks about, I press on to receive the prize. So for Paul, he, he had this competitive spirit almost in him that he wanted to press on faithfully to Jesus Christ to, to receive the prize. Now, what I want to talk about is not the eternal prize that we're looking forward to, the final rest that we get to enjoy. I don't want to talk about that. That is absolutely something we're talking about. But I want to ask the question about these Beatitudes that we've been studying. And the question is this, if, if, if we are to really allow these Beatitudes to shape our minds, our hearts, if we really allow them to define us and we really are characterized by them, what is the end point? What do we become? What does this turn us into? If these really are transformative, and we believe they are because they're the words of Christ, it's God's word to us, if these words do indeed transform us, well, what do they transform us to? What do they make us into? You go through them and you get blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, and you might think this will make you into a doormat if you take these things too seriously. You get into verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, We'll talk about this morning. Pure in heart, peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Well, if you think of each one of these as a brushstroke, painting a portrait, we've looked at each one so far examining that particular brushstroke. Well, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to be mourning? What does it mean to be meek? And that's good to do. 
But for a second, I want to step back and I want to say, okay, what is the portrait that we're painting here? Who are we making ourselves into? If we all actually take on these characteristics, what will we be like? Absolutely like Christ. I want to even get more specific in this. Look at verse 10. As we come kind of to the end of the Beatitudes, in verse 10, Jesus continues. This is kind of, he's kind of bookending the Beatitudes here. This is a second. We're going to skip to the end just so I can show you a preview of the end game here, show you a portrait of the finish line of who we become as we live this out. Verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, as we get through the end of the progression, we've been talking about how the Beatitudes are a progression. You get to the end and you get someone who is living in such a righteous way that at times the world responds to that righteousness with persecution, opposition, or misunderstanding. So there's something about your righteousness that's public, it's known, it's visible. You look at verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I think that's interesting. The kind of last two uh, beatitudes that Jesus gives us as he shapes us into the people he wants us to be is this idea that we're living in this kind of public righteousness that people would know that we are followers of Christ. It's evidenced by our distinctness from the world and that people, even at times, even though some might respond to us with favor as we live out the Christian life, there will be some who, it says here, revile us, persecute us, utter all kinds of evil against us. And why are they doing it? They do it falsely on my account. They do it because we follow Jesus. What he's getting at is this, is there will be people, if we actually live out these beatitudes, it will come a day in our lives that we are so obviously Christian, that the people around us know that we are Christian, and, and some people respond poorly to that. Some people don't like Christians. So it becomes something that shapes your witness. It becomes something that people know about. It becomes something that's public. I think Jesus would be saying here or something one of the implications of this is that your Christianity might be very private or sorry might be very personal but it's not private it's a very personal thing to have a relationship with the Lord but Christianity is public we have a mechanism called baptism where you make known your faith to your church it's something that you live out before your neighbors and your friends and your family it's something public Verse 13, I mean, it even gets more clear. I don't think it could get any more clear than verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Here you are. If you are living in, in all the ways that Christ has described here, what is the result? You become someone who has a righteousness that people see, and Jesus says that you're like salt in the world, which means your function in some ways like a preservative. You keep it from rotting away. In some ways, you add flavor, a little spice to it to keep it tasteful. You make the world a better place by being a Christian here. You go look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. It's like the whole world is dark and there's these little light bulbs going around in the world. And those are the Christians. And where there's bigger lights, that's where churches are. And we're shining our light. It's public. You say, well... What are you getting at, Eric? Well, here's, here's what Jesus is getting at. As you work through these Beatitudes, if you follow where they're taking you, they're taking you to a place where you are living publicly your Christian life to the point where you are functioning as salt in the world, as light in the world. In other words, you are actively engaged in Jesus' mission that he has given to the church to make disciples. You follow the bridge of the Beatitudes and it'll take you into the land of ministry. Service. Helping others follow Jesus. Helping lost people get found. Helping believers in their walk with the Lord. This is where we're headed. And this is also to say that this isn't some special category of Christians who are called to this. That there are some Christians that are supposed to be lights of the world, and there are some Christians that are supposed to be salt of the earth, and there are some that are supposed to have some righteousness that people see, and it's noticeable, and it's observable. He's not saying that there are categories of Christians that some are this. He's saying, no, this is normal Christianity. Everyone 
who's, who's saved has these marks on their soul that they are poor in spirit. They do mourn. They are meek. They are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And as these characteristics shape us, we are shaped into witnesses. Salt. Light. Every single one of us And so one of the things we can ask ourselves that I need to ask myself as I look at this text, I say, if I am not a good witness to my family or my neighbors or my community, I got to go back to the beginning. I got to go back to verse three and really examine, am I really poor in spirit? I got to go back to repentance. I got to go back to confession because if I'm not out here living out the, the end game, then I've got to look at where did the chain break down along the way. So this is where Jesus is taking us. Isn't this where we want to be, right? This is where we as a church, we want to be. We want to be a shining light in our community. Amen? This is what we're all hoping for. I don't think anyone would object that someone would be able to walk down this street and they'd look at that church and say, man, that church, there are people there who love each other and they love anyone who comes in here. There must be something about that church. Hey, that church loves our community. That church is invested in in people's lives. I think we'd all love that. We'd all want to be a part of that church. And we want to be that church. And so the question is, well, how do we become that church? I think we'll become that church by each one of us individually going back to the very beginning in verse 3. And we examine ourselves. Are we poor in spirit? Do we mourn for our sin? We don't want to just skip any process and try to become something that we're not on the outside without dealing with the inside. And so he's made his way through these characteristics of his people, his witnesses, his salt, his light. And he's gone through, and we've looked at what it means to be poor in spirit. You recognize your complete, abject spiritual poverty before the Lord. As you see him face to face, you recognize you have nothing to commend yourself to him. And so that makes you mourn. That's kind of this next stage of our spiritual progress here is after seeing who God is and seeing who we are, there's a mourning, a grief that takes place in our own hearts that then translates in our relationships. We're then meek. I don't feel like I'm better than anyone if I'm truly meek. I'm not easily offended because if you say something that insults me, I don't feel like I'm, I actually feel like I'm worse than whatever insult you called me. That's what meekness is. I'm just going to entrust myself to God. I'm going to obey him as I seek out his will whatever comes will come and then there's this hunger that comes after that we recognize we're poor but we want to be filled and what do we want to be filled with it says here in verse 6 we want righteousness this is the longing of our heart the new heart that Christ gives us is we want to be like him we want to be righteous and now is he's shaping us into salt. He's shaping us into light. He's making us ambassadors. He's making us uh, witnesses to the world. He brings up another characteristic following that same progression. And he says here, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, Jesus is drilling in this idea that the way you evaluate yourself, if you're truly poor in spirit, will really affect the relationships you have and how you treat other people. Now, I want to camp for a little bit on mercy, what it means to be merciful. And I'm going to answer three questions in this sermon. Uh, The three questions are these. You could write these down if you want and answer them as I kind of work through. The first question is this, what is mercy? Second is this, what kills mercy? And then third, what kindles mercy? I want to describe it. I want to describe a hindrance to actually being merciful. And then I want to say, well, what can we do to actually kindle mercy within our own hearts so that we actually become merciful people? Those are the three questions I want to ask. And let's start with, well, what is mercy? Well, the best way to define a word from the Bible is to show what Scripture says about that word. And I want to start by going to Luke chapter 10. You probably know that Luke chapter 10, you find Jesus' parable of the good what? Samaritan. It's a picture of mercy. Here's the picture, just so you know. You already probably have it. Jesus tells this uh, parable to some people, or sorry, to there was a man there who was 
lawyer, he's asking him some questions. This lawyer tries to justify himself in verse 29. And here Jesus, in an attempt to demonstrate what true mercy is like and true compassion is like, in verse 30, here he goes. Verse 30, follow along with me. It says, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So here's this man, he's going on a journey, robbers take him down, they strip him, they leave him with nothing, he's completely, absolutely left for dead. He's half dead, the text says. This is not someone who can get up and help themselves. They have nothing to commend anyone who would come by. He can't offer them, I'll barter, you help me, I'll eventually help you. No, it's not that way. He can't barter, he's on the ground, he's half dead. Verse 31. Now by chance a priest going down that road was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Here's a religious man. Sees this man in poor, in this poor condition on the side of the road, and he passes by on the other side. Passes by. Verse 32. So likewise a Levite, another religious man, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. You're familiar with the story. This man is being ignored by who are supposed to be the religious elite. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, here it is, he had compassion. He had compassion. What happened? Did he just feel something in his gut? Did he just feel bad and and keep walking? No. What did this compassion cause him to do? Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Verse 37, here's our word too. He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. He feels compassion for someone who is in a position where he cannot fend for himself, cannot pay for anyone to help him, cannot pay for an inn, cannot purchase help at all. He has nothing. Everything's taken. And someone, someone who's actually highly unlikely, this Samaritan goes down feeling compassion and reaches into this person's life and helps. This word for compassion, it's a fun word. It's a, the Greek word is splagma. And it sounds almost like what it means. It actually means bowels and intestines. In the Bible, sometimes, if you have an old King James, any of you raised on the King James, there were certain portions where now in our modern translations, it'd talk about a deep longing or deep compassion, or even sometimes uh, feelings of the heart. Sometimes in the old King James, it would translate it bowels. They're talking about how bowels of compassion. Well, that comes from what the Greek word actually meant. It came from, the root was referring to your actual literal bowels. And it came over time to refer to something deeply felt within you. Where you feel so bad, maybe you've felt this way. You ever felt this way? Maybe you're watching something on the news and there's a tragedy that's happened. Or maybe a family friend has something tragic happened in their family and your gut actually physically is affected by the news. You actually physically feel ill in hearing what has happened or in seeing what has happened. Well, this is the word here. This Samaritan passing by someone who is in deep need and helpless, unable to help himself, he feels this deep sense of compassion. And it's not a compassion that just it stays a feeling. It's a compassion that moves forward, moves into action. This is If mercy has two sides, and sometimes it does, this side you might want to call compassion mercy. It's the kind of mercy that sees people in their misery. It sees people in their need. It sees people helpless and says, I I feel something for them. I actually feel the pain that they feel. Their pain becomes my pain, and I want to enter in, I want to alleviate their pain. This is mercy. So when Jesus is talking about the merciful, 
he would be talking about someone who is like the Samaritan. If you want to know, who, well, who are the blessed ones? Well, they're, they're merciful. Well, what are they like? Well, they're like the Samaritan. They're the kind of people who see someone in need, see someone in their misery, they feel it themselves, and they want to get involved and see what they can do to alleviate the pain. This is something that we might call compassion mercy. Now, there's a second kind of mercy, or the other side of the coin, what we might call forgiving mercy. There are two sides of the same coin. But sometimes, uh, if you look, actually, if you look at the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, that good, or the, the man on the side of the road wasn't in sin. He didn't need forgiveness. He needed help. There was compassion. The, the man really didn't forgive him. But all throughout Scripture, God's Word talks about a different kind of mercy. It's the kind of mercy that sees not only people who are miserable and helpless, but also those who are in rebellion and are wicked and sinful. And God's mercy to them is to reach in in love and show grace and show forgiveness. So you might call that forgiving mercy. This is what Ephesians 2, 1 to 4. But God being rich in mercy... He describes the sinful plight of man in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 3. And then he describes how God works toward them, and it's mercy. God gives mercy to those who don't deserve it. One of David's most famous psalms in the Old Testament, Psalm 51. He's been outed as a sinner. He is finally convicted, and he puts his pen to paper to write, Have Mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So there's the mercy that responds to sin with forgiveness, and there's the mercy that responds to helplessness with compassion and help in alleviating the pain. This kind of helps us paint the picture. You say, what is mercy? Well, mercy is the response of love toward people who are miserable and people who are sinful. Mercy is the response of love toward the miserable and the sinful. Now, if you're in that, that chapter 5 of Matthew and you're looking at that beatitude, you might be a little confused at what Jesus is getting at in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And if you're a little bit confused, you would actually be in good company. Scholars throughout the years have struggled with this. You say, what's so hard about that? What's hard about the merciful receiving mercy? Here's what people, some people have thought this means. They have thought that that means that if you're merciful enough, that God will then respond to you in mercy. Yeah, almost like it is if it's something you earn. Now, if mercy is earned, it's not mercy. But some people have said that if I do enough merciful things, then, and, and I kind of get enough of that credit to my account, I've been merciful to enough people, then that means God will be merciful to me. And maybe if you're just not thinking about the context or you're not thinking about the whole of Scripture, you might actually come to that conclusion. Okay, if I'm merciful, then, then God will be merciful to me. So I've got to earn my mercy. There's, there's three reasons why this can't be true. Reason number one is that if this were true, no one would be receiving God's mercy because none of us would be merciful enough. This is not something about earning. This is not, uh, it's not something you can credit to your account. Hey, I've done some merciful things, therefore God has to be merciful, merciful to me. That's impossible. It would totally uh, undo any salvation for anyone because no one would be able to earn God's mercy. Secondly, it can't be true because if this were true, the whole gospel of grace would unravel. It would be all works. We would move from something that became that was the gospel of free grace and free mercy to anyone who repents and believes, and it would turn into something where you're counting how often you're merciful. You would try to be merciful enough. It would be works. It would be earning. It would be payment. It would not be grace. It would be law. So it can't be that. It can't be that you're trying to earn mercy. It can't be that you're trying to be merciful enough. Thirdly, the context makes it clear. Because if you look at the progression, and for all the things that Jesus has been saying, he's not been saying, here's how you earn salvation. He's been saying, here are the marks of those who already have it. Here are the marks of people who are true and genuine Christians. Is that they are poor in spirit. Before God, they're pover they see their poverty. In light of their poverty, they mourn. Because they mourn, they're meek toward others. They don't see themselves as being ones. They, 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 I don't need to defend myself. I'm not offended if you come at me. I'm entrusting myself to God. I'm meek. 
And I want righteousness more than anything else. I'll go through anything. I'll, I'll do anything so long as I get righteousness. I want to be filled with righteousness. Now, any of you have seen a movie or read a book or, or a story? There's, there's several of them. Uh, that they're very, always very popular. The, the rags to riches story. Yeah, I mean, several of the most famous stories are ones where someone started in poverty and then they somehow, over their span of their life, reached a point of riches. And often in those kind of films or in those kinds of stories, those classics, there will be a scene where the one who was once in rags, who is now in a position of power and wealth, goes back to that place where they once were. Maybe it was an alleyway. Maybe it was among the beggars that they used to beg with. And they'll see those people. And and, in various stories do it in different ways. Sometimes the person will come back to that that scenario and they'll look with disdain upon the place where they once were. There's almost a hatred towards the people that he once was. And you don't want anything to do with it. But often, those powerful moments in those stories are when the person who is now in wealth comes back and sees that beggar that he used to sit with on the curb and remembers what it was like to be there. Remembers what it was like to wear those rags. Remembers what it was like to have nothing, to be completely helpless, to be completely dependent on the generosity of those outside of you and in that moment identifies with them. See, this is what the merciful are like. It's like we were once beggars. And by the grace of God, totally undeserving, we didn't do anything. We've been grabbed up, we've been cleaned up, we've been given new clothes, we've been given a table with the king. And now, whenever we walk by that dark alleyway where we used to live, we can't help but feel compassion for the people who are still there. We don't look with disdain on them. We look with love, compassion, mercy. This is what Jesus is getting at. That those who are actually saved, actually born again, that the Spirit has revealed to them who they really are, when you follow the progress, they are those who then look out at the world, at the people who don't yet have Christ, and at the people who are in misery, and they have a sense of compassion and mercy. Your whole perspective changes. Everything changes. I can't look at life the same way again if I've been given mercy. If I was the one in rags and now I'm the one in riches, I can't look at those people in rags the same way because I know I was once there. I remember what I was like. I can identify with you. I don't judge them. I can't stand over them. I see them not as my enemies, but as those who are they're, they're captured by Satan. They're enslaved to their sins and their lusts. They have been blinded and they need compassion I can identify with them because I know that's who I was you guys remember Jesus when he said it says he saw the the masses of people grieved and it says he grieved because they were like sheep without a shepherd and this is the heart of us we all know that we were the same way we were sheep without a shepherd we know what it's like to remember the guilt and the shame of sin and not knowing what to do about it we remember these days of our sin dominating us walking in disobedience in our rags and we remember the glorious gospel of grace how he took us out of that and he transformed us and he opened our eyes and he made us sure of his salvation given to us freely Now we look back at those same people we once rubbed shoulders with, those beggars, those who are spiritually poor, those who don't have Christ, and we don't say the world is our enemy. We say, I have compassion for the world. Think of Christ on the cross as he dangles there and he thinks about those people who nailed him there. And what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them. Mercy, even there as he's in his deepest pain, he's saying to the people who hate him, or about the people who hate him, he's saying to God, have mercy on them. Think of Stephen, the first martyr, as those people who hate him are bringing up those stones to throw at him, to kill him, and he's dying there. And with his last words, he cries out, Lord, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Uh, Would you be offended if a blind man walked into this room and accidentally stepped on your toe? 
You wouldn't, because that's all. they don't have the same sight that you have and the capacities that you have. And this is how it is for the Christian. We, we should not be offended when the world acts like the world. We should be compassionate and merciful and say they don't know what it is to have Christ. They're still in those shackles that I was so familiar with. They're still blind like I used to be. They don't know what they're doing. Lord, don't hold their sin against them. Lord, forgive them. We've seen our poverty. We know what it's like to be blind. We know what it's like to be filthy. And we also know what it's like to have free, unearned grace given to us and bring us out of the pit and place us in a pedestal of grace. And so we never look down at anyone and say, I have nothing to do with you. See, to be merciful is to see the poverty of others, the misery of others, even the sin of others, and to have a deep sense of compassion. What can I do to alleviate their pain? Now, I hope you see how this all relates to being salt and light in the world, because if we are ever the person who crosses by the one in need of mercy, how could we ever be a light to the work of Christ? We couldn't, could we? If we see people in their sin and instead we get offended by it and we want nothing to do with them. If my neighbor's music is too loud, I'm never going to talk to them. If they do something that hurts my feelings or offends me or rubs me the wrong way, I'm out. But it seems like those who have been poor in spirit, who have become then merciful, are the ones who see those things and say, I have pity on you. Not in a sense that I'm above you and I'm looking down at you with pity, but in the sense that I know what it was like. I know what it was like, and I want to help. I want to step in. I want to give you the message that can save you from that. Isn't that the greatest act of mercy, to tell about the God of mercy? And so maybe, in our lives, we need to think about how we are merciful, or if we are merciful. Because if we understand who we are, we can't help but be merciful. So the first question I wanted to answer is, what is mercy? Well, I hope we understand this is what it is. It's, it's when we see who we are and we see what God has done and we understand where we came from and now we can't help but treat other people the way we wish we were treated back when we needed mercy. And now the second question. Let's move on to the second question. The second question is this. Well, what kills mercy? So we're all, we all are walking through a minefield here, right? I don't want us to walk out and say, all right, I'll be merciful. Let me do this, 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 and this. We've got to be careful because there's actually some very important dangers that we need to be aware of. That will actually get in the way of us being truly merciful in the way Jesus describes it. I want you to turn over to Matthew 23. What kills mercy? Well, Jesus dealt with people who didn't have mercy all the time. He dealt with people called scribes and the Pharisees. They weren't particularly known for being merciful. So Jesus had often to talk about what were the things getting in the way of their actual acts of mercy and their actual heart of mercy. And here, in chapter 23, Jesus is giving the scribes and the Pharisees the most harsh invectives he can think of as he describes their hypocrisy. And you get to chapter 23, and you get to verse 23. 23, 23. And he's speaking to these people. Now listen to what he says here, and watch how mercy is brought in. Woe to you. This is the opposite of a blessing, by the way. In the Beatitudes, he's saying, blessed are you. Now he's saying, basically, cursed are you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now listen to what they do. This is, this is fascinating, and it's very illuminating for us. You tithe mint and dill and cumin Say, so hang on a second, Jesus is cursing them or pronouncing the woe upon them because they tithe, because they give. He says, no, for you, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You see, he's making two categories here. He's saying that here's first category, uh, category number one. Here's some things that Christians might do, or at that point, followers of God might have done. You tithe. Mint, dill, cumin, you're tithing these spices, you're doing that. Jesus would even say these things are things you ought to have done. 
These Pharisees were rigidly devoted to keeping their law. And Jesus actually it says at this point, they should have done this. This was not the wrong thing to do. But it does say that he is, what he is getting at is they were doing this, but they were neglecting a different category. A category that Jesus describes as weightier matters. Matters that were far more important. You say, well, what are those, those matters that they were neglecting? Here's what they were neglecting. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You see what he's doing here. There was law-keeping on one side. And he says, yeah, you, sh- you should do that. But in your keeping of the law... You're neglecting something far more valuable, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. In other words, you care far more about what you do than who you are. You care far more about the things you do than the character that you possess. This is profound. Jesus is saying he is far more concerned about who you are than what you do. You say, I I do this, I I give, I show up, I attend this, I do that. And that might be all good. And Jesus might say, yeah, these things you should do. But Jesus wants to be sure that we never neglect the weightier matters, the matters of the heart, the matters of who we really are. And let me tell you, we're convicted or we're we're tempted to do this all the time. Uh, Every single one of us, it's part of being fallen. here's, here's, Here's an example. Here's what we do. You're convicted by a sermon, or you're convicted by something you've read in your Bible study, or maybe you're convicted in a personal conversation. You you say, someone has talked to you, and you go, yeah, I do need to change. And so right there, we make a resolution. And the resolution to change involves some to-do list of some sort. I'm going to read my Bible more now. Okay, you're right, I need to change. I'm going to read my Bible more. That's a good religious thing. We should do that. I'm going to show up to church more consistently. That's good. I'm going to set uh, an alarm so I can get up and pray better. I'm going to pray more. So here's my list. I'm going to read the Bible more. I'm going to show up to church more. I'm going to pray more. And maybe even I'll sprinkle in a little evangelism too because I know that's really hard. But if I do that, then I'll really be doing good. And what the Spirit intended to change our hearts we turn into a to-do list. When the Spirit wanted to work on our deepest desires in our fundamental character, we made it a matter of duty. We make it a matter of keeping the little nuances of the, the law, the tithing and the giving or whatever it was. And we neglect, no, this was all about your heart. This was about your heart. Ancient Israel always did this. The the prophets would come and they would confront the sin of the Israelites. He would say, come to me. Come, I want you. Come back to the Lord. Return to the Lord. And the people would say, oh yeah, the prophets are right. Somebody go get the bull that we need to sacrifice. And let's let's plan a day of mourning. Let's all tear our clothes. And so let's make sure we mourn. And let's make sure we got the right sacrifices. And God would sit there and he'd say, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want you to tear your clothes. I don't want you to go through these things. I'm not asking for you to go through routine. I'm not asking for you to make a to-do list. I'm not asking for more duties. I'm asking for you to love me. I'm asking for you to come to me because you care. You hate your sin. I'm asking you to mourn. This is why the prophets say, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I don't want your bulls. I have all the bulls I need. I have all the cattle in a thousand hills, God says. I don't need your sacrifice. I want you. Imagine a marriage where there's an unfaithful husband. Always kind of flirting. Always kind of lingering with other women. Not faithful. But the marriage is still intact. But this husband is just not what he should be. And imagine the wife comes up to that husband and says, no, I want you. I want your love. I want it to be like on our wedding day. I, I, want, I want us to go back to the beginning. I want your loyalty. I want your faithfulness. And the husband goes, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Let me go get you some roses. And let me go get you some chocolate. And that'll take care of everything. And nothing changed about his heart. Nothing changed about his lifestyle. And maybe a couple weeks go by and the wife comes back again. And says, no, I want you. 
I want this relationship restored. I, I want our marriage to work. I want you to love me. I want your love. You go, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. I'm going to go to the jewelry store and get you a really nice necklace. And, I, and then I'm going to plan a vacation. We can get away together. No, no, I don't want that. I want you. And this is how often we are with God. God says, I want your heart. I want your love. I want your fullest affection. I want you to be so devoted for me. And we say, okay, yeah, God, I'll show up to church. I'll give enough money. I'll read my Bible. I'll have a time to pray. I'll make sure I do all these things. And I go, those things you ought to do, but it ought to come from love. It ought to be who you are. He's not as concerned, Jesus, about the way you carry out the particulars of the law, but he's cared about who you are. Are you merciful? And so we might even hear a sermon like this, and we might be tempted to say, all right, you're right, I need to be more merciful. Here's some things I'm going to do to be more merciful. Well, maybe I'll start doing this thing, and I'll start treating my kids this way, and I'll try to start treating my spouse this way, and maybe I'll go knock on my neighbor's door, and that's all good. It's not bad. But the fundamental issue here is not primarily the things we do, but who we are and what we love and what we care about. You say, what's, what's, what kills mercy? Here it is, formalism. What's formalism? It's where you care far more about the form than the substance. You care far more about the externals than the internals. I don't want you to go do acts of mercy. I want you to be merciful. And merciful, mercy will just flow out of you. I remember meeting with a student um, years ago. And this particular student was bemoaning over the fact that he never remembered to read his Bible. And I just can't remember. And we'd meet, we'd talk, and, and, and just, just couldn't remember. And so we're talking about this, and, and, and I asked him, I said, so if you were to meet someone that just never remembered to eat, what would you say to them? <coughs> Well, that would be weird. There'd be something wrong with them. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what if you met someone that never remembered to eat and never remembered to drink? What would you, you know, what would you just maybe say to them? Say, well, there's something wrong with them. I'm like, yeah. And, and what would happen if they went that way for a long time? Like they just never ate and they never drank. He, he said, well, they'd be dead. I'm like, yeah, yeah, they would. And I, I showed. Well, what what do you say about someone who spiritually doesn't want to eat and doesn't want to drink? They don't want any righteousness. They're not pursuing anything. Might it point to a heart that's dead? A heart that has no longing, no hunger, no thirst? Might it point to something wrong with who you are? And his sad response was this. Okay, I know what I'll do. I'll set my phone to having a reminder, so I'll read my Bible every day. And you know how long that lasted? Probably not even a day. He tried to fix his heart with a list with a reminder. Jesus is reminding us you can't fix the sickness in your heart with the band-aid of formalism. It's not going to work. See, if, if we have any problem, like if, if we hear this, we go, I'm not merciful as I ought to be. I don't really feel compassion for people like I should. I don't feel compassion for my neighbor. I don't act mercifully to my wife. I'm really hard on my kids. If, if we hear that and we say, here's the list now that I'm going to implement, you're not going to change. You're not going to keep it because you're not addressing the heart. See, if someone doesn't give, it's not that they have a giving problem. It's that they have a heart problem. If someone doesn't want fellowship, it's not that they have a social problem, it's that they have a heart problem. If someone keeps forgetting to read their Bible, it's not that they have a memory problem and all they need is a reminder every day. No, they have a heart problem. And if we have a merciful, mercy problem, that we're strict and unyielding and with no grace and no compassion, the people cross us one time the wrong way and they're gone. If we have that problem, it's a heart problem. You say, well, how do I fix a heart problem? It's not by a to-do list. Here it is. It's repentance. It's going back to the beginning. It's going back to poor in spirit and saying, I am poor in spirit. I know I'm supposed to be merciful. I know I need to. I know I have to. I know this is who I'm supposed to be. But you go back and you say, Lord, but I'm poor. I can't change myself. I can't change my heart. I can't do the heart surgery needed on myself. I need the Spirit to do this because I don't want to just be a formalist where everything's on the outside. I want to love mercy. I want to be like God where it says He delights 
in giving mercy. And here's the beauty that the one who on his knees cries out to God says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Listen, God shows up abundantly with mercy for that person. You want to be truly merciful? You want to be truly transformed from the inside out? Be absolutely confident in God's ability to transform you. Believe the gospel changes you on street level, not just your eternal destiny, but your everyday life can be changed by the gospel. And then he can make you a merciful person. But you'll have to begin on your knees saying, I can't do this on my own. I don't have the resources. I need you. You show, right now this is leading us into our third question. Well, what kindles mercy? How do we really create this in our hearts? I want us to be merciful people. I want to be known for being merciful. I want to be that man, and I hope we are that church, that just exudes mercy, that people just feel they can come up to us with their baggage and their sin and in their helplessness, and they can come and they know that here they're going to find help, and they're going to find comfort, and they're going to find people who will embrace them with loving arms, merciful people. How do we become that? I think the answer is to wonder at God's mercy. To live in wonder of God's mercy for us. If you don't wonder in God's mercy, you'll wander from God's mercy. If you're not living in wonder of it, you're going to wander from it. If we don't stand in awe of His mercy, we're going to grow cold. See, God's mercy is like the sun. And our mercy is like the moon. The sun is shining, and the moon is shining. But how does the moon shine? It's the reflection of the sun, right? As the sunshine hits the moon, the moon takes on some of that own shine, and it'll shine up in the night. Here we are. We don't have intrinsic mercy. We don't have mercy in and of ourselves. We must look to the mercies of God. And as we wonder at those mercies, then we suddenly become merciful people. We need to be people who stand in wonder and in awe of God's mercy for us. We need to wake up every morning. It says God's mercies are new every morning. And we need to wake up with awe at the fact that God has been merciful to us. Isn't that hard, though? I mean, let's be practical. As you wake up this morning in awe of the mercies of God, Sometimes it's easy to not wake up in awe of the mercies of God when there are bills to pay. In my case, when everything I own is in a box somewhere and we don't know where anything is. When there's maybe relational strife. When there are people in your life that you want to avoid. When there's traffic on the freeway. When there's tight budgets. When there's homework to be done. When the game's on TV or the next cool gadget's coming out. There are distractions all the time. And hey, it's hard to wake up in awe. It's hard to live each day in awe and wonder at God's mercy when our minds are being crowded out by our daily struggles and daily distractions. And so we need to... Take time to think about meditating on God's mercy. You'll never be a merciful person if you're not meditating on the mercies of God. The product of a meditating heart will be mercy. If you want to have a merciful heart, it's the product of a meditating heart. A heart that meditates, that thinks deeply, that chews on, that continually is bringing to remind itself of the mercy that God has shown you. I want to give you three things about God's mercy to think about. Think about this, that God's mercy is intrinsic. It is part of who he is. Our mercy is not. Our mercy is derived from his. Our mercy is something he gives to us as a gift and enables us to do. But God's mercy is really part of who he is. Think about that. Think about Moses. When Moses wanted to see God, remember, he came to Moses, or sorry, Moses came to God and he said, God, show me your glory. He wanted to see the glory of God. I think it's interesting that God didn't reply by actually visibly showing him. He actually had Moses turn away. He wasn't able to see any, see all of it. But even more than what Moses was able to see, it was what Moses heard. He said, show me, but actually what Moses got was a message. And what did God say is, if we want to see the glory of God, God responds by giving a message. And the message he gives, he says, is Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before Moses and he proclaimed the Lord says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. This should be something we think about deeply, that part of the fundamental character of the nature of God, 
Not that he has to put on like a cloak every once in a while and he has to put on the hat of mercy every once in a while. No, this is who he is. He is merciful. He delights in showing mercy. He enjoys to show you mercy. Let this be a message that just echoes through this community that God is one of mercy and he has demonstrated his mercy fundamentally through his son, Jesus Christ. It's intrinsic. Think about his intrinsic mercy. Think about this, secondly. Think about how God's mercy never fails. Toward his people, his mercy never turns off. His mercy never comes to an end. You guys know the, the, the verse in Lamentations, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. New mercies every morning. You woke up this morning and there was new mercies for you. You'll wake up tomorrow morning and there's new mercies for you. There are mercies for you more than the stars in the sky. There's more mercies for you than the sands on the seashore. It says in Psalm 23, in that psalm about the good shepherd, that surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. You will wake up tomorrow clothed in mercy. You'll live out, throw out the rest of your life in mercy. It's like a shadow that you can't escape. It follows you every day of your life. You will die being clothed in the mercy of God. And one day you'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And you will be confident. Why? Because God's mercy has been shown to you. And you're clothed in it. And you're confident in it. And he is delighting to show you mercy. He's rejoicing over the fact that he gets to show mercy. This is the beautiful thing about mercy. It's this. It's not deserved. And so that means, if you do good today, you're not going to get an extra dose of mercy. And if you do bad tomorrow, you're not going to get a little less mercy. It means it's constant, ever-flowing, never-ending, every day, on your worst days, abundant mercy, on your best days, overflowing mercy, unfailing mercy. Why? Because it's God's delight to be merciful to you. Think about that. Meditate on that's who he is, and that's what he's chosen to do to his children. Constant, never-ending mercy. Thirdly, think about this. You say, how could this mercy come to me? Think about how much mercy cost. What mercy? What mercy it is that God who cannot suffer took on a human nature in the person of Christ so as to experience the full depths of suffering and to pay the penalty for our sin. This demonstration, Jesus Christ on the cross, is the pinnacle of divine mercy. You want to know what mercy is, look at the cross. This is the height of wonder. If you want to wonder at something, look at the cross and really think about what it is and what happened there. John Stott wrote this in his famous book, The Cross of Christ. He tells something a little bit autobiographical. He says, I myself could never believe in a God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one that Nietzsche ridiculed as the one who's called the God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could I worship a God who is immune to pain? I've entered Buddhist temples in different Asian countries, and I've stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs crossed, his arms folded, his eyes closed with the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face detached from the agonies of the world, but each time. After a while, I've had to turn away, and in my imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death, and he suffered for us. He was not obligated to do this. He was not obligated to come for us. He was not obligated to save me. I did nothing to deserve it. There's a man who professed to be a Christian, but he lived in a completely immoral lifestyle. And a Christian friend came up to him and said, how do you call yourself a Christian, but you live like this? His response was, God is good. 
He's bound to forgive me. That's his job. I pray we never slip into that mindset. Oh, I can live however I want. God will forgive me. That's his job. A mindset that just trivializes, trivializes the cross, spits in his bleeding face, and completely says irrelevant are the nails and the thorns and the death of Christ. No, he paid for mercy with the shed blood of his son so that you and I can be completely, totally covered in mercy and grace. That's the picture of mercy. You want to meditate on mercy, think about the cross. Think about him on there, dangling, paying the full payment for your sin, facing the full wrath of God the Father. His perfect, innocent life deserved nothing but commendation. And my loathsome, sinful life has done nothing but eternal condemnation. But he took all of my sin, shame, guilt, and he stood there in my place, condemned for me and condemned for you. He was like that good Samaritan. He was the perfect good Samaritan. And he reached into sinful, fallen humanity. He felt compassion for the lost. He came with mercy to save. He saw the lost, the poor, the broken, the needy, and he came in. And he did it at great cost to himself, dying there to purchase me and to purchase you forever, to be clothed in mercy throughout all eternity, to enjoy the riches of his kindness. What mercy? You want to think about mercy? Let's become merciful people by thinking about how God is merciful. That God gives unfailing mercies. And the way he did it is by purchasing it, purchasing it for us for us by the blood of his Son. Do you know what it is to have been touched by divine mercy? If you have, there's no way that you could turn around and be without mercy to those who need it. There's no way that you can see the immeasurable debt you owed completely paid off so that you're totally forgiven and they go around treating everyone as if they owe you something. I'll finish with this illustration that paints the picture of what we're talking about here. A man named William Booth years ago, a preacher, used this illustration. It's a gripping illustration that ought to even inspire us to be those who, if we've experienced mercy, will give mercy. He says this, I saw a dark and stormy ocean. Over it the black clouds hung heavily. Through them every now and then vivid lightning flashed and loud thunder rolled while the winds moaned and the waves rose and foamed, towered and broke only to rise and foam again, tower and break again and in that ocean I thought I saw myriads of poor human beings plunging and floating and shouting and shrieking and cursing and struggling and drowning and as they cursed and they screamed they rose and shrieked again and then some sank to rise no more. And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. And all around the base of this great rock I saw a vast platform. Onto this platform I saw with delight a number of the poor, struggling, drowning wretches, wretches continually climbing out of that angry ocean. And I saw that a few of those who were already safe on that platform were beginning to help those other poor creatures and pulling them out of the angry waters to a place where they could be safe. Now, looking more closely, I found a number of those who had been rescued. And now they were industriously working and scheming by ladders and ropes and boats and whatever other means effective to deliver the poor strugglers out of the sea. Here and there, there were some who actually jumped back into the water, regardless of the consequences in their passion to rescue the perishing. And I hard, hardly know which gladdened me most, the sight of poor drowning people climbing onto the rocks and reaching a place of safety, or the devotion and self-sacrifice of those whose whole being was wrapped up in the effort to deliver more. And as I looked on, I saw that the occupants on the platform were a mixed company. That is, they were divided into sets or classes, and they occupied themselves with different pleasures and employments. But only a very few seemed to make it their business to get the people out of the sea. And what puzzled me most was the fact that though all of them at one point had been rescued at one time or another from the angry ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. 
Anyway, it seemed the memory of its darkness and its danger no longer troubled them at all. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that these people did not even seem to have any care. That is, any agonizing care about the poor perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their very eyes, many of whom were their own husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and even their own children. If, you, if the Christian church is divided into people, I hope it's not. That some people are those who see what they've been saved from and are willing to dive in, willing to go to whatever length necessary to save those who are still in danger. And then there's those who just go on with their life as if nothing happened. If danger's passed, I don't need to think about that more. I pray that we would be a church that, having experienced God's mercy, would then make it our life's ambition to make sure others know about this mercy. And give others that mercy we've, we've been given. That your friends and your neighbors and your spouse and your children, that they know you are one they can go to for mercy. And that you are one who will go to them with a heart of mercy, with compassion. God has saved you by divine mercy. And Jesus would say that blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. All right, let's pray. So, Lord, we confess again that we don't have